At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Due to the graphic nature of this episode's content, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex, assault, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Quote, The door opened. A tall, dark figure glided in. Her arms were folded upon her breast beneath a mass of flowers. For a few seconds... She stood motionless, her eyes fixed upon a statue of Shiva at the end of the room. Her skin blended with the curious jewels, a cask of worked gold upon her dark hair, an authentic headdress, a breastplate of similar workmanship beneath the arms. Above a transparent white robe, a quaint clasp held a scarf around the hips, the ends falling to the feet in front. She was enshrouded in various veils of delicate hues, symbolizing beauty, youth, love, chastity, voluptuousness, and passion. The first notes of a plaintive melody were sounded, and with slow, undulating, tiger-like movements, she advanced toward the god. It was an appeal to help her avenge a wrong. Her eyes shone with the fire of revenge when she began, but after a while, A softer light crept into them as she strove to win the favor of the deity. Then the movements became more and more intense, more feverish, more eager. She first threw flowers and then divested herself one by one of the veils, implying that as a sacrifice, she gave beauty, youth, love, and finally worked to a state of frenzy, unclasped her belt, and fell in a swoon at Shiva's feet. End quote. Those are the words of society journalist Francis Kaiser about a private dance performance he attended in Paris in 1905. It was one of the first performances of 28-year-old Dutch woman Margareta MacLeod, who became better known as Mata Hari. She built her fame on the novel and erotic dances she performed, claiming to have learned them as a part of a secretive religious ritual. She's remembered in part for her pornographic postcard series, as well as a string of wealthy lovers left in her wake. But she's best known for the way she died. 
executed as a foreign spy. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're talking about Matahari, the famed erotic dancer and courtesan and the events that led up to her agreement to spy for both France and Germany during the First World War. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter as at Parcast Network. Mata Hari was a famous dancer from the Netherlands, though she insisted she was from the Dutch East Indies. Her erotic dances allured audiences throughout Europe from 1905 through 1915, though she was also recognized as a flamboyant partygoer and as a skilled courtesan. But she's equally well known for her time as a double agent during World War I from 1916 to 1917. In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into Matahari's early life, her abusive marriage, and her first days as a dancer. And in next week's episode, we'll take a look at her dancing career, her many lovers, and the short-lived career as a spy that led to her tragic death. Margareta Gertrude Zella was born on August 7, 1876, in Leeuwarden, a small city in the Netherlands. Her parents were Adam Zella, a proud young merchant, and Antje van der Mulen, a woman from a higher-class family than Adam's. They had married in 1873, about three years before Margareta's birth. Margareta's brother Johannes was born in November 1878, when she was two, and her twin brothers, Ari and Cornelius, were born in August 1881, when she was five. By all accounts, Margareta was her father's favorite. He doted on her beyond his means, giving her beautiful dresses and fanciful gifts. In 1882, for Margareta's sixth birthday, Adam bought her a stunningly gorgeous goat cart, as well as the goat to pull it. It looked like a real carriage, and it could carry several children at once. While some of the adults remember wondering if this gift would go to the little girl's head, the children of Leywarden remember their classmates' gift with a kind of magic and nostalgia. It was something many of them saw as a highlight of their childhoods. Adam's work became more focused, mostly on the haberdashery business, and he found some success. In 1883, he moved the family to a nice brick house in the more fashionable part of Leywarden. Over the next six years, Adam and Anche sent Margareta to get her education. At school, she learned such skills as would have befitted a young upper-middle-class woman expected to marry well, including handwriting, music, and French. Margareta led a comfortable, happy life and seemed poised to grow into a proper young lady. But when Margareta was 12, Adam tried to invest in more speculative businesses, namely oil, and buying up land that was thought to contain it. He poured too much money into it and took out too many loans, 
and when there was no oil to be found, had nothing left. He was forced to declare bankruptcy in 1889. Anche, Margareta's mother, had a breakdown only days later and remained unwell for the rest of her life. Margareta's education stopped as he went off to look for work in The Hague, one of the three largest cities in the Netherlands where the central government was located. In the meantime, Adam moved the family out of the nice brick house and into a small, cramped apartment. For Margareta, the biggest change was that Adam couldn't spoil her any longer. Not only did he lack the wealth to buy beautiful gifts for Margareta, but for the first time, he wasn't even physically there. Given Margareta's later relationship with money, her father's bankruptcy may have acted as a financial flashpoint in her life. Before we get into Margareta's psychology, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Brad Klontz, author of the book Mind Over Money, financial flashpoints are childhood events that are so powerfully associated with money that they can help determine a person's financial outlook for the rest of their life. In Margareta's case, since it was such a negative financial flashpoint, it may have led to self-destructive financial behaviors in her adulthood. Adam hadn't found a job by the time he returned to Leywarden the next year in 1890. He and Ansha fought about how he wasn't supporting their family until finally in September, they legally separated. Which would have been considered a huge scandal. In the Netherlands at that time, most people expected that a husband and wife would either work things out or quietly live separate lives. But to get the courts involved, to openly declare that their marriage had fallen apart, was seen as a disgrace. Adam didn't make things any easier when he moved to Amsterdam and took up with another woman. That left Anche to support the family, which she did to the best of her ability. But she wasn't able to do it for long. She died in 1891, at age 49, for unknown reasons. On the day of Ancha's funeral, 15-year-old Margareta, in what was considered an indecorous display, played the piano happily. This wasn't the only time, or even the first time, that her behavior would be considered inappropriate. The four Zella children were not picked up and cared for by their father after their mother's death. Instead, they were shuffled off to various neighbors' homes. Within the next year, half of the Zellas actually did go to Amsterdam to live with their father, but Margareta was not among them. It's believed that she and her father's mistress didn't get along well, and that Adam chose to side with his lady friend at the expense of his favorite child. Perhaps the friction was caused by Margareta's growing disregard for social conventions, as evidenced by her behavior at her mother's funeral. So instead of joining her father and brothers in Amsterdam, Margareta went to live with her aunt and uncle, the Vissers. They urged her to continue her education and sent her off to boarding school. Well, that's a little generous. Really, they believed she wouldn't be able to land a husband. She acted too improperly. She was the product of a shamefully dissolved marriage, and they thought her physically unattractive, in part due to her darker complexion. Though Margareta was a white Dutch woman, her complexion would be the cause of much confusion throughout her life. To them, that meant Margareta would have to learn how to earn a living, hence school. So in 1892, with money from grandmother Vandermeulen, 16-year-old Margareta went to learn how to be a kindergarten teacher. 
It's worth noting that Margareta did not at this time, or any other time in her life, have any particular love of children that weren't her own. She doesn't appear to have even liked them very much. But that wasn't the biggest obstacle on her career path. That would be Vibrandis Hanstra, the headmaster of her boarding school. He was 51, married, and attracted to Margareta, who was 35 years his junior and also under his care as a student. Sources describe what followed as a brief sexual affair between Margareta and Hanstra. As Matahari years later, Margareta became known for her promiscuity and sensuousness. So it made sense to people that she would seduce a teacher. But the fact that Margareta was still a child under Hanstra's care, and that the power dynamics were so uneven, make a strong case that their sexual affair was more of a coercion. Such a relationship today would be seen as exploitative and abusive. And that's how the school saw it, when the sexual relationship between student and headmaster was revealed in 1893. Except, they believed that it was Margareta who was at fault, not Hanstra. A 2006 study titled Perception of Teacher Sexual Misconduct by Age of Student posits that teachers who abuse children under their care are given much more leeway when their student is older. Perhaps the fact that Margareta was 16 and was viewed by society as a woman rather than a child is what contributed to the perception that she was more to blame than the adult who abused her. Hanstra continued to run the school while Margareta was kicked out and sent back to her aunt and uncle's house. The Vissers didn't want her, though, so the newly 17-year-old Margareta had to find somewhere else to go. Eventually, she came to The Hague and lived with her relatives, Mr. and Mrs. Taconis. The Hague was a much bigger city than she was used to, and it was teeming with attractive colonial soldiers on leave. She frequented nearby cafes and parks while her family pressured her to start some kind of vocational training, certain that she would never find a husband among all of these restless soldiers. But eventually, in 1895, she caught the eye of one soldier who was looking to wed, Captain Rudolph MacLeod. Rudolph was 39 years old, more than twice Margareta's age, and he had spent the past 17 years in the Dutch East Indies, or modern-day Indonesia. He graduated from military school in 1877 as a second lieutenant, and was almost immediately shipped out to fight a burgeoning war between the Dutch and the Sultan of Aceh, a province on the island of Sumatra. No one anticipated that this war would last for 40 years. Rudolph served in Aceh for seven years and reached the rank of first lieutenant. In 1884, he was stationed in Java, then Borneo, then several other places. It didn't escape Rudolph's notice that he was getting a lot of transfers, but no promotions to go with them. Perhaps this had to do with the nature of Rudolph's personality. By his own admission, he was a heavy drinker, gambled plenty, and spent too much time with the local women. It was a common practice for men in the Dutch army to take a mistress from the local population. If the Dutch had had an established military presence there for some time, soldiers would seek out mistresses of mixed ancestry. It was a status symbol for the soldiers, and these women would often help the men learn more about local culture as well as keep house. Sounds like a great deal for the soldiers and a pretty terrible deal for the local women. You would be correct. By 1890, Rudolph was transferred back to his original post in Aceh, where he was finally promoted to captain. He even earned the officer's cross in 1892. 
1894, however, he was sent back to the Netherlands on account of illness. We don't know for certain what he was sick with, but there are many sources that believe he was granted leave due to syphilis. Rudolf didn't really know how to be back at home, though. He'd been away for 17 years, mostly spending time with other soldiers or the women who he made his mistresses. How was he to blend back into Dutch society? A friend of his had an idea about how to help Rudolf acclimate and placed an ad in the paper in 1895. It read, Officer on home leave from Dutch East Indies would like to meet a girl of pleasant character. Object, matrimony. He received over a dozen responses, but only one girl of pleasant character thought to send a picture. Yes, this enterprising girl was 18-year-old Margareta. Rudolf became quickly interested, and they wrote back and forth to one another for some time. Margareta wanted to meet, but Rudolf's poor health kept him from meeting her right away. They had their first date at a nearby museum in March of 1896. It seems to have gone well, as Margareta signed her next letter to him as, quote, your future wife. And it only took another six days for them to become officially engaged. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. As a plant-based cheese company, Daya has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Daya cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based. Even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. And now, back to the story. In March of 1895, 18-year-old Margareta Zella became engaged to Rudolf McLeod, a soldier about twice her age, only six days after meeting him in person. That seems pretty quick. It was, but there may have been a good reason for it. Margareta and Rudolph's letters suggested that they became sexually intimate pretty quickly. I thought Rudolph had syphilis. It's very likely that he did, yes. So he told Margareta about it, and she was fine with it. Signs point to no on that one. Today, we would call this rape by deception. Rudolph omitted key information that would likely have changed Margareta's desire to become sexually active with him. At this time, syphilis wasn't just stigmatized as a sexually transmitted infection. It was one of the biggest health crises in the world. Doctors didn't know how to treat it. The first effective treatment wasn't found for another 15 years. So Margareta likely would have had some hesitations about sleeping with, let alone marrying, a man who had syphilis, if she knew about it. But she didn't. So they proceeded with the marriage plans together. Rudolph asked Margareta's father, Adam Zella, for his permission to marry Margareta. Adam, who by this point had been mostly estranged from Margareta for several years, 
consented to the marriage, with several caveats. One, they would have to invite him to the wedding. Two, they would have to hire a fancy carriage for him to ride in on the wedding day. They agreed and set a date. Margareta Zella became Margareta MacLeod on July 11, 1895, only four months after meeting her husband for the first time. She wore a yellow silk gown, and Rudolph wore his dress uniform. Adam's carriage, though it took him to the wedding, carried him back home instead of taking him to the reception, just as Margareta had requested. They honeymooned in Wiesbaden, a spa town in Germany, where the first signs of trouble in their relationship appeared. Too many young men flirted with Margareta, which made Rudolf very jealous. This was the first time he'd shown this jealous side of himself to his new wife. She wasn't overly bothered by it for now. When they got back to The Hague, Margareta discovered something else Rudolf hadn't revealed to her in the few months that they had known one another before the wedding. He was broke. Because he was on leave, Rudolf only got half pay, much less than Margareta would have expected from a captain. To add to that, he had accumulated debts that weren't helped by his gambling habit or his alcoholism. And he hadn't cleared his marriage with his superiors, a necessary step to make certain that the military wives in the Dutch East Indies were prepared to spread European culture among the native population. Perhaps the reason he didn't go to his superiors about Margareta was because they knew about his syphilis and would not have given him the go-ahead to wed. So instead of getting additional money to support his wife from his employers, he would instead have to support her out of his own already meager pay. Margareta, meanwhile, had grown to hate frugality. She had married in part because she expected that she wouldn't have to worry about pinching pennies ever again. This would be a constant source of strife between her and her new husband. To save money, the newlyweds lived with Rudolf's sister, Louisa, who had urged Rudolf not to go through with marrying Margareta, something Louisa thought was a huge mistake. Louisa had lots of opinions about Margareta and wasn't shy about making them known. To add to Margareta's already awful situation, Rudolph, despite getting so jealous of the young men who flirted with Margareta on their honeymoon, started seeing other women about two weeks after they got back into town. He would leave Margareta at home with his unpleasant sister for long periods of time while he cavorted with other women around town. All in all, this was not the life that Margareta thought she had signed up for by marrying Rudolph. In March of 1896, Rudolph's two-year leave was extended. He and Margareta moved out of Luisa's house after about eight months with her and found their own place to live. That year, they were invited to a reception for the 16th birthday of Queen Wilhelmina, the young ruler of the Netherlands. Margareta was astounded by the beautiful decor, the stunning costumes, and the esteemed guest list. She even got to meet the queen. The glamour of the event was more what Margareta had hoped for in marrying a captain, and the event briefly brought the two closer together. And soon, Margareta was pregnant. Rudolph requested another six months of leave, and 20-year-old Margareta gave birth to their son, Norman John MacLeod, in January of 1897. Rudolph doted on their son, and Margareta began to feel as though they were a real family. Soon, though, Rudolph's leave finally came to an end. 
the family packed up and set sail for the Dutch East Indies on May 1st of 1897. Margareta was ill for the majority of the trip. Some sources speculate that this could have been due in part to the syphilis she likely contracted from Rudolf. They arrived in Jakarta on June 7th. Even though Rudolf had spent 17 years in the Dutch East Indies, he didn't give his new wife a clear idea of what to expect. He didn't explain very clearly what would be expected of her as a military wife, and she was mostly thrown into a role that she may not have completely understood. Military wives, like other colonial women, were expected to help push European civilization on the native Indonesian population, mostly through observance of strict decorum about how to dress properly, how to keep house, and how to raise a child. The men, meanwhile, were, well, soldiers. They were fighting to impose European culture on the natives in a different, more violent way. Author Mary W. Craig's book, Tangled Web, states that, Quote, the social facade perpetuated by military wives that hid the brutality of empire was necessary to maintain the fiction of bringing civilization to the natives, but was equally important in providing the men of the colonial service with a psychological haven from the realities of their actions. End quote. And Margareta, as a military wife, would be expected to know how to do all of this. This was part of why the Dutch military vetted marriage candidates to make sure they were up to the task of making Indonesia Dutch. In any case, Rudolf's post was to a military fort in central Java. As the wife of a captain, Margareta would likely have had a lot of control over her household. For example, she likely would have had an indigenous nanny for Norman, known as a babu. But the Dutch East Indies also brought an unexpected problem to the forefront of Rudolf and Margareta's marriage, that of race. As we've mentioned before, Margareta had a darker complexion than many other white Dutch women. She had dark hair, dark eyes, and olive skin, which set her apart from the many blonde-haired, blue-eyed, fair-skinned women of the Netherlands. That meant that, even though she was fully of Dutch heritage, she was often assumed to be of mixed ancestry. And in the Dutch East Indies, that meant embarrassment for Rudolf. Javanese women and women of mixed ancestry were viewed by the racist white Dutch soldiers as immoral and debased. No matter where in the world they were, Europeans tended to perceive women of color as both inferior to white women and as hypersexualized. Europeans exoticized these women, applying stereotypes like immoral that they had themselves invented in order to justify why colonial subjugation was right. That often resulted in European men fetishizing native women to the detriment of these women's psychological well-being and sometimes even their safety. All that to say, as a Dutch woman with a darker complexion who could be easily mistaken for a woman of mixed heritage, Margareta was assumed to be equally immoral and debased, especially since the MacLeods' marriage hadn't been sanctioned by Rudolf's superiors. She was constantly teased about her sexual availability, and she drew the attention of various soldiers at the fort. For a woman married to a man who had already shown that he could be irrationally jealous, these jokes and assumptions put Margareta in a difficult position, one of having to justify her interactions with other men, of having to constantly prove her fidelity to her husband, all because of how she looked. By December 1897, Rudolf was promoted to major, 
and restationed in Tumpang, a much more metropolitan posting. They lived in a large house with plenty of space and had enough money that Margareta was able to buy pretty new clothes frequently. Which was good because 21-year-old Margareta was in need of new maternity clothes. In May of 1898, she gave birth to their second child, a girl named Jean Louise. But to her family, she was non. In September of that same year, 22-year-old Margareta and 43-year-old Rudolf had another audience with Queen Wilhelmina as she took an elongated trip to her colonies. The celebration included races, banquets, balls, and theatrical productions. It was at this point in 1898 that Margareta performed in public for the first time. She had loved being the center of attention since she was a child, when her father doted on her so publicly, but Margareta hadn't sought out opportunities to perform a role before this. She was the star of one of the theatrical pieces, a play titled The Crusaders, and she wore a low-cut violet dress and a string of pearls. What should have been a triumphant moment for Margareta turned a bit sour as people began, again, to comment on the question of her race. Rudolf became annoyed and angry, both at the people who questioned his wife's background and fidelity, and also at his wife for having these people question her. This anger boiled over after Margareta came back from a short holiday with the children. He accused her of cheating on him with one of her many admirers, and their arguments soon shifted into fights. It may have been around this time that Rudolf first became physically abusive towards Margareta. But his star was on the rise in the armed forces. By December of 1898, Rudolf was given command of a garrison battalion and moved the family to Maidan in Sumatra. Most of the male workers in the area would have been unmarried due to policies that discriminated openly against hiring married men. That meant that the ratio of men to women was skewed, perhaps as much as nine men to every one woman. Which didn't help Rudolph's jealousy and paranoia about Margareta's fidelity. This, along with his drinking, his gambling, and his debts, made him even more unstable as a partner. For example, Margareta and the children went to stay with their friends, the Van Reeds, in Tumpang for a week. But Rudolf didn't send over any money for passage back to Maidan. Even on a higher salary, his finances were always in terrible condition, and the stay was unceremoniously extended to two months. During that time, Margareta's money completely ran out. She wrote to Rudolf, asking for more money, but he didn't respond. Remember... She and her children were completely dependent on Rudolph for money. There wasn't another way for her to pay for her family's food or clothes or anything. And the only way she survived was through the kindness of the Van Reeds. Eventually, she had the Van Reeds reach out to family back in the Netherlands to get in touch with Rudolph. Rudolph, embarrassed that other people now knew about the state of his finances, got in touch with Margareta and told her to wire for money. She eagerly awaited the funds, hoping to pay back her friends and head home again, but still he didn't send anything. Meanwhile, Margareta's and the children's clothes were becoming tattered. She had packed for a short trip and had to wear and wash the same few outfits over and over. Rudolph did book passage and sent over a little bit of money to Margareta, but it took him nearly two months to do so. We don't really know why it took him so long, but... It may have been as simple as he didn't have the money. As we've mentioned, 
He was a drinker and a gambler with a lot of debt to his name. Maybe his wife and children's homecoming wasn't as important as paying off his creditors. Margareta and the children had been away for two full months, eight times longer than the week-long trip they had originally planned, with no real explanation forthcoming from Rudolf. They arrived in little better than rags, quite a sight for an officer's family, with the children looking thin. Rudolf, instead of owning up to the fact that this was because he hadn't sent any money over for his family to live on, blamed Margareta for the state the children were in. And he continued to begrudge her for the smallest purchases. As soon as they were back at home, Margareta immediately went shopping for new clothes to replace the ones that had fallen into such disrepair during Rudolf's abandonment. Rudolf berated her for spending that money selfishly. A 2014 paper titled The Effects of Economic, Physical, and Psychological Abuse on Mental Health defines economic abuse as coercive behavior that makes the victim economically dependent on her partner and at a greater risk of continued abuse. It goes on to state that this type of abuse creates financial dependence as well as a hostile environment where the abused woman is continually psychologically distressed and anxious about material or financial issues. Rudolph didn't appear to care about the stress he was causing to his wife through his abuse. Instead, Rudolph's letters from the time indicate that he really didn't trust Margareta at all. He didn't trust her with his money, he didn't trust her with other men, he didn't even trust her to take care of their children. He wrote in a letter to his sister Louisa, How Margareta makes me suffer. This vain and egotistical creature would have killed the children by not thinking of them. This, of course, is in reference to how thin and pale the children were when they returned from their two-month trip, the one where Rudolph refused to send money for Margareta to feed them. Yet the children's health was of the utmost concern to him, and as he didn't understand that his own actions led to his children's suffering, he continued to heap scorn on Margareta. When Norman became ill in early 1899, Rudolph blamed 22-year-old Margareta's parenting skills. In reality, though, Norman's poor health may very well have been related to syphilis, which can be passed from mother to child. That would make Rudolph the guilty party, though he never conceded that he gave Margareta syphilis. Instead, he accused her of having caught it from one of her alleged dalliances with other men. During Norman's illness, both of the children were given medicine, and Norman recovered within a week's time. But Rudolph became obsessive about Norman's health. His letters from this time show that he was scheming of ways to get Norman and Non away from Margareta, who he believed wasn't caring for them properly. Again, Norman's illness was ultimately Rudolph's fault for never telling Margareta that he had the disease, yet he blamed her instead of taking responsibility for his own actions. This wasn't the last time the children got sick that year. In late spring of 1899, the children both got sick. They vomited frequently until, that June, two-and-a-half-year-old Norman died shattering his parents' hearts and their marriage. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to female criminals. On June 27, 1899, 22-year-old Margareta McLeod and her husband Rudolph mourned the death of their oldest son, Norman, to a mysterious illness. The book When Children Die says that 
The death of a child may be experienced as the death of the parent's future dreams, as well as creating a profound change in their present roles and functioning. In Norman's case, his two parents responded in very different ways. Rudolf stood watch over his son's body until they buried it, to the point of neglecting his wife and his still sick daughter. Meanwhile, Margareta took care of Non, nursing her through her illness. She desperately wished to go back to Holland and put all of this behind them. But now, Norman's grave was in Sumatra, and Rudolf did not want to leave. But the question arose, what had happened? How had Norman died? Rudolf hadn't allowed an autopsy before Norman was buried, as he hadn't wanted to disturb the body before he was buried. The doctor at the military base, however, believed that Norman and Non had both been poisoned. There's been a lot of speculation surrounding this theory. There was a story going around about Norman's nanny, or another household servant, having tried to kill the children, and another one about Rudolf's former concubine coming back to claim her man. But these stories are likely entirely fictitious. They played into that racist Dutch narrative of native women as immoral and debased, and more than willing to murder the Dutch colonizers. If they were poisoned, it's much more likely that it was an accidental case of food poisoning rather than deliberately poisoned food. It's also possible that it was complications from congenital syphilis. That could explain why Rudolf was so hesitant to have an autopsy performed, but we'll never know. It came as a blow to the entire family when, less than a month after Norman's death, Rudolf was given a different, lower posting back in Java. Perhaps this was because of his increasingly erratic behavior and his efforts to drown his sorrows in alcohol, gambling, and women following Norman's death. They wouldn't be going back to Holland, but neither would they be able to visit Norman's grave again. The only bright spot was that Non was feeling better. They departed for the new command in September 1899, and Margareta and Rudolf's marriage began to deteriorate even more quickly. They both blamed each other for Norman's death, and Rudolf became more abusive towards Margareta. He was financially controlling, he insulted her intelligence, and he beat her. All of these constitute intimate partner violence, or abusive and violent behavior between spouses or people in a similarly close relationship. Margareta, for her part, dreamed of divorce and moving back to Holland. Her dream at the time was to study theater in Amsterdam. In the Dutch East Indies, though, she fulfilled this urge by dancing for her friends when she went to visit them. It's said that Margareta, around this time, openly cheated on Rudolf, as he had been doing for a number of years at this point. When he confronted her about it, he threatened her with divorce— that would mean that she'd be without the usual widow's pension when he died. In return, she threatened to go around town with all her lovers and show them off to everyone on the base, humiliating him with her indiscretions. Suffice to say, they did not get divorced. Not yet, at least. In October of 1900, Rudolf was granted an honorable discharge from the Dutch Armed Forces— since he was no longer active in the military, his salary was cut by about a third. Neither Rudolf nor Margareta really knew how to live on such a small amount of money. They moved to an inexpensive town near a volcano in the Dutch Indies to try to make do on Rudolf's severely reduced wages. But 24-year-old Margareta felt unhappy and isolated in this tiny little town. She wanted to move back home. 
to Amsterdam or to The Hague, somewhere where she could be among friends and family, somewhere perhaps that she could leave Rudolf once and for all. Only seven months after Rudolf's discharge from the military, Margareta wrote to her father Adam, saying that she feared for her life within her marriage, that she was being abused by Rudolf and needed to find a way out. Adam agreed to help her get a legal separation, which would protect her widow's pension. He sent detailed letters about the abuse his daughter was facing to the Honorable Officer of Justice as evidence that could be used to obtain the separation letter. Margareta said that Rudolf had given her and the children syphilis and put all of their lives at risk, that he had beaten her with a cat of nine tails, that he had threatened her with a loaded gun, all far outside the bounds of what Dutch society viewed as acceptable behavior between spouses. But Margareta couldn't leave. She refused to leave her daughter Non behind with Rudolf. So she waited another year until Rudolf was finally ready to move back to the Netherlands. In March of 1902, 25-year-old Margareta finally made it back to Amsterdam. She and Rudolf moved back in with his sister Louisa, the woman who had so disapproved of Margareta back when she had first married Rudolf. In protest, Margareta stayed out very late every night for two weeks, openly entertaining other young men, until Rudolf agreed to find them all a new place to live. It didn't take long to realize why Rudolf had wanted to stay out of the Netherlands entirely. Within weeks, his creditors were banging at his door, demanding that he repay his debts. In the midst of all this chaos, three-year-old Nan got sick in August of 1902. Rudolf took her out for a walk for some fresh air, then didn't return home. He had kidnapped their daughter. This was the last straw for their marriage, Margareta reported them missing that evening, then filed for divorce within a day or two, citing Rudolf's abusive behavior to the Amsterdam courts. She asked only for custody of their daughter and a small monthly payment. Rudolf sought out Adam, Margareta's father, and told him that he wouldn't contest the divorce or try to ruin Margareta's reputation if Adam could make it worth his while. Adam refused to pay him off though that was likely because he didn't have the money rather than because of any moral uprightness on Adam's part. They became legally separated in September. Margareta had the modern-day equivalent of about $30 and a young daughter to care for. Meanwhile, to no one's surprise, Rudolf refused to pay the small monthly payment unless Non could live with some mutual friends instead of with Margareta. He said it was so they could both see their daughter, but it may have been one more way for him to exert control over Margareta. He continued to refuse to send money, this time saying that it was because he wanted to reconcile. She pretended to be interested long enough to get money for clothes and food for Non. But still, Rudolf wasn't satisfied with the arrangement. He wanted to take back everything he felt belonged to him, including his daughter, his money, and his wife. So, he hired people to follow and observe Margareta's comings and goings to see if there would be anything further he could exploit. And there was. Margareta was entertaining men at cheap hotels, scandalous enough behavior on its own to brand her as an unfit mother, even if she wasn't accepting payment. He blackmailed her into giving the marriage another go. So in November of 1902, she moved back in with him. 
This, as with physical and economic abuse, was another form of intimate partner violence that Rudolph regularly undertook in order to keep Margareta under his control. It didn't take long for the marriage to fall apart again, but now Rudolph took custody of four-year-old Non with no argument from Margareta. She couldn't support the girl, and Rudolph likely blackmailed her into leaving Non behind. As far as we can tell, Margareta did not see Non again for the rest of either of their lives, just as Rudolph wanted it. For the first time since her teenage years, Margareta didn't have any children in her care. Margareta briefly moved in with Louisa, Rudolph's hated sister, who may have just been happy that her brother was finally free from Margareta's influence. Louisa suggested that Margareta try to find modeling work in some small stores around town. But Margareta wanted to pursue her dream of being an actor. She traveled to The Hague briefly to try and kickstart her career, but she wasn't able to find much acting work there. She decided to try her luck in Paris in early 1903. She tried to find work however she could, including as an actor, as a nude model, and eventually as a sex worker. Rudolph, of course, heard of this and threatened to have her institutionalized if she continued to ruin his reputation from abroad. They were still married, after all, with only a legal separation in place. But Margareta wasn't able to attract enough clients to secure a good living for herself. She briefly moved back to the Netherlands in 1904 and stayed with some of Rudolph's family. She was well cared for until Rudolph wrote the family with his own version of events, which resulted in Margareta being asked to leave. She returned to Paris in 1904, determined that things would go differently this time around. Even though she was a hair away from destitution, she checked into a very nice, expensive hotel. It wasn't long before she got a job at a riding school and equestrian circus, where she would ride horses for the pleasure of the upper class. She styled herself as Lady Gresham McLeod, saying that she was the widow of an officer and was struggling to support her two children. And though Margareta was an accomplished rider, a friend at the circus suggested that she take up dancing. It would be an easier way, she thought, to meet and mingle with people who were cultured and classier than riding in a glorified rodeo. Margareta took this advice to heart and began developing a series of dances based very loosely on her time in Java. Her costumes and poses were similar to those seen in Javanese dances, but the actual dances were her own. That didn't stop her from claiming otherwise, though. Margareta would say that she learned these sacred dances during her time in the Dutch Indies, where they were performed as part of a ritualistic offering to the gods. That's what made her act different from the similarly skimpy dances performed at venues like the Moulin Rouge, the promise of the sacred. Her first performances were private and took place in the home of a high-society hostess. She wore revealing costumes, accented with jewels and veils, and the air was heavily perfumed to simulate, well, to simulate what French people thought the Dutch Indies might have been like. Her dances entranced everyone who saw them and believed that they had really come over from the Dutch Indies as a ritualistic prayer to Shiva, the Hindu god of transformation and destruction. But more than that, it was because of 28-year-old Margareta's showmanship and dedication to her character. Though that wasn't all she laid bare in these performances. According to the book Femme Fatale, Love, Lies, and the Unknown Life of Matahari, Margareta later said, quote, I never could dance well. 
People came to see me because I was the first who dared to show myself naked to the public." End quote. After the rousing successes of these first private dances, she was invited by French industrialist Emile Guimet to dance at his Museum of Asian Art on March 13, 1905. But he suggested that she adopt a stage name, perhaps one that indicated something where her dances originated from. Margareta chose the name Madahari, a Malay phrase that meant sunrise or eye of the day for her performance at the Musée Guimet. It was a name that would stay with her for the rest of her life. Matahari's dance at the Musée Guimet was her largest venue to date, with 600 spectators in the audience. Those who had seen her earliest performances gossiped with the uninitiated as they waited for the act to begin in the library. It had been dressed to resemble what Europeans who had never seen a Hindu temple might think a Hindu temple looked like. There were plenty of candles with flowers and vines draped over the furniture and statues of Shiva and other gods placed ceremoniously around the room. A hidden orchestra introduced Matahari, who emerged in a jeweled headdress, a beaded bra, and draping fabric veils. She introduced herself with a newly reimagined backstory. Now, she was a native Javanese woman who had grown up in the temples, who wanted to share this prayer with the audience. She explained the meaning behind her prayers and dances, saying, quote, My dance is a sacred poem in which each movement is a word, and whose every word is underlined by music. The temple in which I dance can be vague or faithfully reproduced, as here today. For I am the temple. All true temple dances are religious in nature, and all explain, in gesture and poses, the rules of the sacred texts." End quote. She continued, explaining the gods for whom she danced. Quote, One must always translate the three stages that correspond to the divine attributes of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, creation, fecundity, destruction, by means of destruction toward creation through incarnation. That is what I am dancing. That is what my dance is about. End quote. She was, of course, inventing the meaning of these prayers, just as she was inventing the dances themselves. The only meaning these dances had were whatever Matahari could make the audience believe they meant. To an audience that was used to seeing ballet and opera, this was something quite different, and they were willing to buy into the fantasy Matahari was constructing for them. We opened the episode with a description of Matahari's performance at the Musée Guimet as reported in its own time. Suffice it to say, the audience was entirely captivated. The dances were sexual in nature, but the audience found it perfectly plausible that they could be sacred as well. One journalist wrote about her performance that night, describing her as, quote, wearing a cask on her head like a peacock's, the mark of a god, the sharp sword in her fist, the crisp between her teeth. She coils around her waist an opaque and gleaming belt, throws around her hips transparent material marked with the emblem of the divine bird. She cries for vengeance." End quote. Her dance was slow and seductive at first, before building to an intense and passionate finish where she lay at the feet of the image of a god. Everyone who was in attendance raved about Matahari's performance, and the newspapers wrote about it for the first time. They described it as alluring, a must-see for anyone who called themselves society. Not bad for someone who describes her own work as saying, quote, 
I act as thousands do. I speculate on sensuality, I behave coquettishly, and flirt now and again with a full house. End quote. Paris was enthralled with Matahari, and her reputation would only grow. Over the course of 1905, Matahari was booked to dance more than 30 times in theaters and for private home performances. The newspapers continued to build up both her allure as a dancer and her mystery as a woman. That is to say, Matahari lied to the press a lot about who she was and played up that mystery at every chance she got. She gave contradictory accounts to different publications, which only added to her mystique. This may have been something of a game to her, as she kept every article, contradictions and all, and placed it in a scrapbook of her life. Also in 1905, Matahari acquired a talent agent, Gabriel Astruc, who represented some of the biggest names in show business at the time. He got her a gig at the prestigious Olympia Theater in Paris, where she danced to her largest audience yet, around 2,000 people all at once. Her show was very well-reviewed by the press and the public alike. Matahari wrote to her father Adam around this time and let him know how happy she was in Paris as a dancer. This was the life she had always wanted for herself. And this life was kind to her for a number of years. She would become an internationally renowned dancer, an opera performer, and a style icon. But she would also transform from performer to courtesan over the course of the next decade as she found herself pushed out of the spotlight. And when World War I broke out, she'd find herself in a dangerous and unenviable position, putting her life on the line to spy for two warring countries for the sake of a man who didn't love her enough. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll explore Matahari's rising career and her fall as an unwitting double agent. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find a new one every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. See you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Dana Shaw and stars Vanessa Richardson and Sammy Nye. 